Our scripture reading today is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Grace. Well, I'm grateful to be able to, um, as I often get to, uh, last week, um, which happens every now and then, I was jetting back and forth between both campuses preaching at both services, and sometimes Scott Sauls, who's our senior lead pastor over there, will do that here as well, and so I'm glad to be here this morning and sit here with you and be able to eat donuts afterwards, so please grab me afterwards if you can. I'd love to meet you if I haven't already. And if you're new to Nashville, I often meet people that have moved here within just a couple of weeks or months, and maybe people who've lived here for years. I don't know if you've actually gone to Centennial Park and not just hung out there, but gone into the Parthenon before. I'd really encourage you to do it because it's a really cool deal. And it's not just that you go in and see all these kind of relics and things that they've set up in there is that... Uh, in, in style, but when you go underneath, if you go deeper underneath the Parthenon, there's actually a museum that has all these old pictures of what Nashville used to look like, particularly in that area. And there used to be this river that ran through, I mean, it's kind of crazy if you see it, the river actually, or they had that man-made one, now it's kind of stopped up, just that lake-looking thing, but they even have boats on there, the, the, the fair, World Trade Fair was there, and it was, you know, you see the language, maybe you've heard this before and you're wondering why, Nashville is called the Athens of the South. And the reason it was then and it still is now is because the amount of, of density and academic um, uh, educational institutions that lie in Nashville that are inside this area is enormous. In fact, today, there are not only that, there are 20, uh, 24, 20 four-year colleges or universities, three of which are, are, are right around us here, there are also um, six community colleges and 11 vocational and technical colleges in this city. Imagine how many universities and institutions are of education. That's just of higher level education. I mean, it, the Athens of the South is very real. And I, I don't know if you've been watching the news or been enjoying Nashville or why. Maybe you moved here. Maybe you're visiting uh, even here. And... Nashville is booming. It's being, being considered a boom town in some, some respects. The news is calling it because it can house and hold things that are massive events. Like it held three events uh, together in a row with the, the, uh, the Preds and the Stanley Cup as well as the CMA and uh, other mass, massive music festivals that were going on. It's also considered sometimes the third coast. That there are people that are living here and even moving here instead of New York or LA because it's such a connection between those two cities. This city is, 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 is exploding. And, and maybe you're here this morning and uh, you're new, you're walking in, you're maybe a visitor to in town or a visitor to Nashville uh, this morning. And 
The question I want to ask to us is, is somewhat of a cliche one, but I think it's incredibly important all the time, is what is the point of the church in the city? How do we actually love the city? Is there a disconnect between walking in the doors of the church and doing worship and then leaving and kind of doing the city? And I think there are many people, maybe you're in this room feeling that, Maybe you've lived in Nashville for years and, and you're seeing Nashville grow and you're, you're like, oh, I don't want it to grow. I want to fight it. Don't grow. Don't grow. Maybe you're here and you're like, I love the growth. I'm eating it up. I'm taking it all in. Is loving the city one of those things or is it more? Because it'd be easy for us to either hate the city for what's happening to it or use the city for what it can give us or the position it can give us. But I think the Bible is talking about it differently. In fact, when we look at what the Bible says about cities and how cities were defined. Cities in the Bible actually weren't defined by what they, were, what they offered, nor by their impact, nor even their size. They were defined by the proximity of people living in close relationship to each other. That's actually the definition of cities. That's how they, that's how they did census. So how close they lived, worked, and played with those around them. Isn't that what we're seeing here? Isn't that what we should ask? as we look at what does it mean for us to love the city? And I think as we look at this passage, it's a short one that kind of really expands into Acts. Acts is, is, a, is a book that comes after the narratives of Jesus. And it's actually a book that was written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel Luke, to tell us what happened after Jesus left. What happened after Jesus ascended into heaven and is sitting next to God? What did the apostles do? What happened with the church? How did it interact with the city? And we get a snippet here as we could look at all the chapters in Acts in these verses of what that means. And you would think if it's a religious community and the Holy Spirit has just come to land on them, when you read in this passage, the Holy Spirit has come and has settled upon them to say, you need to go out. You'd think, oh, there's going to be all these fantastical experiences. They interact with the city by doing amazing things. But there are three actual simple ways that the city is impacted that they taught, they shared, and they grew. That's it. They taught, they shared together, and they grew. And that's what we're gonna look at this morning as we read this. That they taught, in the verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The first thing right out of the gate is that they devoted themselves to teaching and the apostles' teaching. And what were the apostles? Now, the apostles' For him to say that, Luke to write that is incredibly important because the apostles were the, the law keepers of the gospel. They were t holding on to it and passing it forward. It was incredibly important for the reliability of what happened with Jesus' life to be passed on through them. And it wasn't just 12, it was many people who had witnessed Jesus, not only his life, his death, and his resurrection that were a part of this to pass it on. And here's what it really means too. It means that Christianity is distinct in this aspect, that the apostles weren't just going out and teaching so much things that they just discovered or made up or were inspired by. Their actual teaching was inspired by events. See, the distinction of Christianity than any other religion is actually this, that the events drive the teaching rather than the teaching driving the events. Notice that the book of Acts doesn't come before Jesus. And if you read of Jesus 
in the narratives, he, he is teaching a lot, but everything is driving home this point of his life, his death, and resurrection. His teachings are a part of that. They're a part of that whole growth process, but a part of who he is as the Christ, the Savior. So what the apostles are doing is they're carrying forth not new teachings, they're carrying forth the story of Jesus. If you were to look in the book of Acts and flip through every time you heard one of the apostles speak, they always just go back to the narrative. They always are repeating what just happened. They'll even reference things from the Old Testament, the books before Jesus was on the scene, because they're not just saying, Here's a new thing. They're saying, here is the event that happened. I've said this before to some of you, but maybe you haven't heard this before. The word gospel is not necessarily a religious term. It's actually a term that was used in this day uh, all throughout the Roman Empire as well as other places. In fact, there's a, 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 a historical marker of the word gospel was used uh, with Caesar Augustus, said the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus was an inscription. The word gospel was a word meaning evangel. It meant a proclamation. It meant there was a proclamation of an event, such as a, a king taking a throne or an enemy being defeated in battle. It wasn't so much something that you just had an opinion about. It was something, an event happened that you had to react to. So when the apostles took this teaching forward, they were taking this word, that an event that happened. They weren't just taking their teaching. They were taking the event of the gospel forward. And they brought it in teaching through several ways, but one major one was through teaching rationally. And I think some ways that we think and we read, and you may think this about the Bible, especially if you're, if you're kind of picking it back up again or making, asking questions regarding it, that rational life or, or, or what we would call the, the rational understanding of life and faith are not separated from each other. I think what's very important about the distinction of what the Bible is saying is these are eyewitness accounts. This is a rational understanding that links to your faith. Yes, you have to believe. But we're believing in a historical document that's being put forward. And I think there was a, um, and I, I love this author, Tim Keller, if you've heard his name before, many of you have, he's, a, he's a, a pastor in New York City. He was asked to speak after one of his biggest books came out, Reason for God, which is a kind of a, a rational discussion, to speak at Google. And he's done this a couple times, apparently. And when he spoke there, one of my, it's actually on YouTube. You can go on YouTube and find it and look up his discussion about these, his book. But one of the things I loved about it was the Q&A time at the end where everybody in the Google uh, department was just sitting there and they were able to just pepper him with questions. And the very last question was my favorite of all of them. And the, the guy, and when I say Google guy, I don't know his name, so I'm gonna use that when you hear me read this. But here's what the Google guy asked Tim Keller, this pastor. He said, interestingly enough, I wanna say that I'm... Hypothetically, I'm actually God, and if you don't bow down and worship me, then I'll send you to hell, and my hell is a lot worse than the Christian hell, and you're probably not going to worship me, but why not? And Tim Keller said, if you died on the cross after living a life in which everyone is amazed at the quality of it, then afterwards, hundreds of people see you with the nail prints 500 at a time repeated over 40 days, well, that's different. Then people might start to say, people who didn't believe are believing. They come and see you. They put their fingers in the nail prints and that's a different situation. That's re really what you have with Christianity. The Google guy back said, 
Well, that did actually happen to me, but in Antarctica. And you probably didn't hear about it, and I can't provide you any rational evidence for it, but it did happen. Listen to Tim Keller's response. He said, but Christians would never say that. They would say, here is the eyewitness accounts. Here's the 500 people in, in, in the Bible that Paul writes about that are only 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, there's still 500 people that saw Jesus at one time of his appearance. And he says, most of them are still alive. Go ahead and talk to them. But if you're not going to do that, so what, are you, what you're saying is you can't, that I can't give you any eyewitnesses. Paul says, I don't want you to believe in Christianity unless you can go talk to these people, these eyewitnesses, these accounts, and they're real, they're there, and you, you have to provide that opportunity. You see, the rationality of, of Christianity isn't that it's just stories made up. This is reportage of these events that connect to our historical space and time. And that is super important for us to understand that the apostles' teaching had to be grounded in reality and space and time. If not, then the eyewitness of who Jesus is as God saying, taking on flesh, wouldn't connect to our reality. It would just be another book of stories. But Jesus doesn't let us see that. It also says that the way they taught was intuitively, that they connected the heart to the story of Jesus. We see our story couched in the story of Jesus over and over. The relationships, the people in the Bible are being connected in their story no matter where they are, that the commonality isn't that they, they do the same things or they are the same person. The commonality is always the language of this event. And it connects their story and it brings up their story in it. And, uh, Netflix did a, a survey on binge walk, watching and, and I thought it was very interesting what they said. Listen to what they said. Binge watching isn't an emergent trend or a behavior. It's a mainstream and now new normal. 61% binge watch regularly. Two to three episodes of single TV series in one sitting. This is where... Uh, people want to get defensive and say, well, I don't watch that much, but we do. Isn't that why Netflix puts out all their shows at once so we can binge watch on it? Netflix has become like a, a, a verb nowadays. I'm going to go Netflix. You know, like that's how we utilize it. Listen to what they also said. Dispelling the conventional wisdom, binge watching is actually moderate behavior. And here's why. Listen to what they came to the conclusion of. In a highly fragmented, 140-character, 24-7 world, viewers are seeking out long, longer-form, complex storytelling. It's the fact that we all long, and it's embedded in us, a story to come up into. Netflix is genius because they realize this about our DNA. We want to be brought up into a story. We do that with, with anything we watch. We want a good book to not end. We, we get swept up into it. We want our story to be connected to others' stories. That's a part of who we are. And what the gospel does is say, this event connects to your story. This teaching is important for your story because it connects to every single dot of where you are. It is a complex story, but it's woven in over history and space. This is why Jesus is actually coming in flesh, actually coming in history and time and space, because if he didn't come in history and time and space and actually do the things he did in flesh and claim that he was God, then would it make sense for our story to connect? 
Would we be doing something in this room this morning that would be meaningful? Unless it actually connects to some larger story that is meaningful. There's something there. So not only did they teach, but they shared. The very next verses, and they actually kind of draw this out. It says that, and all was being done through the apostles and all who believed, uh, it says, uh, were, uh, were together and had things in common. Even if you go down, it says more, and all who believed had things in common and day by day were they attending. And they were, uh, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the poor. That they were sharing life together. And here's what's unique about it. Historically, if you look back and you read about what people thought of Christians then, there are several accounts of different uh, Greeks or emperors or, or those who have these lines, one of which said, Christians are a vile bunch who share their table with everyone and their bed with none. That they, 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 didn't, they, they brought people in and they cared for them in, a, in an uncharacteristically way that they brought a person, they shared. And here's what's interesting. When it talks about sharing, it would be easy for us to read that and say, they just shared good things. They shared resources, they shared time. And they did do that. But that word in Greek, share, is actually a deeper word. The word fellowship is even deeper there. Listen, even the beginning, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship means they shared something in common. And it drives back to that. They didn't share a philosophy and they didn't just share a region and they didn't share a home and they didn't just share food. They shared a person. And that is very interesting because when it says they shared fellowship, they devoted themselves to fellowship, is that they didn't have a mediator or someone between them in relationship that was a thing or an ideology. It was actually a person. So that when they began to view one another, They didn't view each other as having a commonality of, wait, you're in the same city as me. They did have those, those were important. But the new lens through which they saw one another was saying, I share my life through Jesus, through another person. I reorder everything in my life. Some, it is a, actually a, a somewhat of a good picture of a, a deep relationship or of marriage where when there's a marriage, you begin to reorder your time, your resources, your money, when you're dating and, and, and you're in a deep fellow, a relationship with someone, you begin to start shifting your day. You're, the way you see the world starts changing because you start saying, what would this be like for me to do this because it'll affect them? Deep friendships that you have, circles that you run in, what is it like? What are the lenses? That's what they're looking at. There was a 21st century martyr named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was actually a part of the... Uh, <clears throat> of a group that was trying at the time during World War II to assassinate Hitler. And he said this about what it meant to follow Jesus. He said, without Christ, we should not know God, but we could not call upon him nor come to him. But without Christ, we would also not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. Christ opened up the way to God and to our brother. See, they shared Jesus as a mediator because think about this relationally. If, you, if your mediator is law, if your mediator is some sort of ideology or philosophy or maybe something, maybe it's some commonality, if that thing is compromised, if that thing is seen as more valuable than the person, it can actually change the way you care for that person. 
But if the mediator is one that holds both people in a relationship as important, as who matters, the sharing of life is way deeper. And here's what's interesting. It says that as any had need, that they distributed as they saw need. What are the needs around us? If, if we really believe this stuff, if, if the church is to be real, shouldn't we be actually aware of the needs around us? Shouldn't we be aware of not just needs abroad, but right next door to us? Caring for the, the great things. I even mentioned some of them before in, in our missional communities that there are huge needs in our city. There's human trafficking all around our city. And as it grows, don't you know, there's gonna continue to be a fight against that even larger than there was before. How are we addressing things like that? One thing that I find that is one of the greatest things as Nashville grows, and you would think that it might be some sort of out there-ness, is I sit with people over and over, the number one thing I hear over and over that is a need in Nashville is loneliness. So many of you have sat with me and said, I am entertained like crazy. I have my schedule filled up. I'm running from one thing to the next. I feel like I'm, I've got plenty to do, but I don't know anyone and they don't know me. And as I read, someone sent me this article. It punched me in the gut from the Boston Globe, of all things. It said this. This was the, this was the title. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. And the more I read the article, it wasn't just about men, it was about men and women. Listen to what Billy Baker, who wrote this article, who actually, as he began, I was reading, he was kind of honest about it. His editor said, you need to write an article why people are so lonely. And he goes, wait, are you calling me a loser? <laughs> like, I need to write this article on this? You're kidding? And he said, the more he looked into it, the more he was honest and realized how lonely he is. Listen to his research. He quotes the former Surgeon General I'm saying the Surgeon General of the United States, this was written right before the transition recently, has said many times in recent years that the most prevalent health issue in the country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity, it is isolation. The research doesn't get any rosier. In 2015, a huge study was done out of Brigham Young University using data from 3.5 million people collected over 35 years. It found that those who fall in the categories of loneliness, isolation, or even simply living on their own see the risk of premature death rise from 26 to 32%. Now consider that all the United States, nearly a third of people older than 65 live alone. By the age of 85, that has jumped to about half. Is basically saying that this has become, loneliness has become a public health ep epidemic. And this is what he quotes from a psychologist. He says, since my wife and I have written about loneliness and social isolation, we see a fair number of people for whom this is a big problem. Often they don't come saying that they're lonely. Most people don't come, listen to that, most people don't come saying they're lonely. Most people have the experience that, that the editor had or that the author had in the editor's office. Admitting you're lonely feels much like admitting you're a loser. And it oftentimes doesn't it feel like so difficult to reach out to those around you, to say, I'm actually lonely. Could you include me? Could I be a part of this? Or looking to those around you that could be lonely. 
Are we willing to admit that? I, I know that sounds kind of internal and deep. It's really not. Everyone in this room is struggling with loneliness to one degree or another. And it doesn't matter what on the, where on the spectrum you lie. Loneliness pervades. And I'm telling you, this city, as it grows, as it becomes more entertainment-driven, as there is more stuff here for us to do, we can get busy doing and forget all about who we are in our being and what we really need. This is what it means to share, to care, to reach into the needs of this city and see what is around us, to see the people that need it, the hearts that are breaking, the hearts that, are, are we willing to be honest? This is what Christianity is, is calling us to. It's saying, are we willing to be honest, first, that we're lonely, and second, that we're willing to step into other people's loneliness? Are we willing? Because then what good is the church doing than people just coming in and out the doors if we're not entering into lives? Isn't this the distinction of Christianity? It always lines up in the fact that we can share morality, we can share things. Jesus was a good teacher, but what was different as he entered into our mess, died for our loneliness in order to bring us into the deepest fellowship that we can have and never let us go. Shouldn't that be what we're walking out with, sharing? And if that's true, all of our resources should be like this. If we have the deepest love of someone who meets us in our loneliness, then resources, time, stuff, we can go into the city and give. This is one of the most gracious, kind cities. You know that every single weekend, there's some sort of benefit going on. You probably know that if you've been here any time. But are we giving our lives as well? Are we putting ourselves into it? And I want to draw this out as not just looking to what's here, but even looking to abroad. I saw a part, another political cartoon regarding the hurricanes. And as tragedies have hit, I don't know if you've seen or watched kind of the news or see political cartoons, there's often these uh, hashtag pray for, right? And there have been a lot of, on both sides of that, uh, a lot of criticism, and this one cartoon I saw was a, a lot of prayers happening around the coast. And, uh, and it was kind of this question of what's going to happen. As I mentioned even last week, my own family in, in, in Houston uh, and, and others now in Florida that are, that are getting hit, and many of you are affected by that as well. Are we simply praying or are we entering in? Are, are we simply praying, and we should be praying, but are we actually stepping forward into those things? Are we giving? Are we caring? Or is the end that a hashtag pray for? Prayer is so powerful, it is important. I'm not dismissing that. But it is so easy for those that may not be used to and watch Christians from the outside and see, come into a church like this and see us do all this stuff and then go, what happens when they leave? Are our prayers moving into action, moving into love because we are talking to a God that is meeting with us, that he shares, they shared. And you know, the last thing that they did here that's fascinating and beautiful is that they grew. You know, it says that they grew in a couple ways. It says here, that day by day they attended the temple 
in verse 46, together in breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their day, to their number day by day. They grew. First, they grew in worship. They grew in what they knew. It didn't drive them away from the temple. It drew, drove them to the temple to worship. And I want you to understand that the Christians in that day, they began to move worship. And this is why we worship on a Sunday, is they moved worship of God from a Saturday to a Sunday because that was the day when Jesus resurrected. In fact, they claimed that because they moved it on that day, they were celebrating every single Sunday the fact that Jesus came out of the grave to deal with their sin, with the world around them. And they were being oppressed. They were dealing with suffering, execution, death. And how did they grow? They grew by praising, by going back and worshiping. Worship is a word that means worth-ship. They held what was worthy to them in their hands. When we come to this table, we are saying this. We are saying that we're holding in our hands bread and wine that is worthy, not because we're worthy, but because he's worthy. Because he's the one that's actually, it is his body and his blood that he's given for us. They grew in praise in glad hearts and they continued meeting together and breaking bread because this is the only way they could go out. They didn't see Sunday as the end of their week. They saw it at the beginning that drove them out into the city to do their jobs, to live with their friends and family, to care for those around them. It drove them out, it recentered them, it recalibrated them so they could understand. That's why we come to this table. This table is to understand that. And this table is also for this. This table is also to show and encourage many of you here, and maybe you're here this morning, as I say, every week, and this seems foreign to you. Maybe this table is foreign. Maybe a lot of what I've said is interesting. It is to actually help encourage you to, co to contemplate with integrity to say, there's something about this. The number of people that were saved grew daily because not just random things. It's because they met. It's because people said, Let me, I'm gonna ask what this is about. I wanna know what y'all are doing. I wanna understand what this table is for. If you're here this morning and maybe this table doesn't make sense, I would encourage you to either stay in your seat, remain in your seat, or come forward with, as we form semicircles up front and receive prayer or benediction. Contemplate it, take it on. Because this is, this is serious. When we talk about the church loving the city, we're not messing around. We believe that Jesus, what we're doing in this table is to proclaim as he does his death until he comes again. So with that, I want us to stand together. We will read together.